good morning. It's been 15 weeks since we've had more than 10 people in this room when I've preached. So welcome to those of you who are here in the worship center. I'd like to welcome those of you who are joining us in the venue in the north part of the building, as well as those of you who are joining us online. Today our topic is resilience as followers of Christ. A resilient person is someone who walks with God for the long haul. And so if you're a resilient person, when suffering and trials and disappointments come, you don't give up. You don't become angry and bitter and cynical. You walk with God faithfully faithfully for a long haul. And I dare say that every single person, every single person hearing this message would say, that's the type of person that I want to be. When I do funerals, I'm, I'm very much aware that most people in the, in the audience are wondering this, I wonder what they'll say about me at my funeral. And nobody wants the pastor or the friend to stand up and say, yeah, oh, Steve, he was a decent guy. He had maybe one good year, right? I think it was 94. He was moderately faithful to God. He was sort of loved his wife and his his kids, and uh, he did an okay job. At his no, we, we don't want to be that. We want to be people who, over the long haul, love God and love others well. Today's passage kind of gives us a vision for that type of resilience. And when I use the term resilience today, it's, it's basically synonymous with perseverance, endurance. The word our passage uses is patience. And so whether you have been particularly resilient in the past or not, by God's grace, with his help, you can be a resilient person in the future. I would summarize the main command in this passage this way. Pursue resilience daily for life. Pursue resilience daily for life. That's what James is telling us. And the vision for these verses is the type of perseverance that we'll sustain for a lifetime. If you were with us last week, uh, James addressed the ruthless rich. These are wealthy people who lived in luxury and self-indulgent, and they, were, uh, they mistreated the poor. They withheld wages. Uh, they took them to court over all sorts of trivial things. And James told them that you need to know there's a great reversal that's going to happen. You've been on top in this life, you're gonna be on the bottom in the next life. Beginning in verse seven, James addresses the, the poor who are actually being mistreated in this life. He says this, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Again, verse eight, he says, you too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And so in both those verses, he links patience with the Lord's return. I don't know what, what comes to your mind when you hear the word patience, but I think for me sometimes I think, okay, I'm supposed to be patient. I'm not to, supposed to be quite as grumpy, quite as irritable, especially when I'm around annoying people. And that's the case, but that's not what James is talking about. He's talking about something that is much more Christ-centered and it is, it is much more substantive. The old English term for patience was long-suffering. And so if you are patient, you're not just a nice person. You suffer well for a long time. 
And James is trying to, to cast a vision for that type of patience. He's trying to preempt also inappropriate responses to suffering. He tells the poor believers in Asia Minor, suffer well. There's some, some uh, indication that they would, would be tempted in one of two directions. On the one hand, they might be, be tempted to violent uprising. These people have wronged me. I have a right to go after them and everything I've got. On the other hand, there might have been the tendency to just want to give up. I'm so beaten down. I'm so discouraged. I'm just going to quit. And so uh, both extremes are expressions of unbelief instead of confidence in God. Last week, we saw how James told the ruthless rich, you need to anticipate the return of Christ, and you need to anticipate the judgment you're going to experience. Here, James is talking to the poor, these poor believers, and he says, anticipate the relief, anticipate the reward that you will experience. And so he says, be patient until the Lord's coming. And the Lord's coming is a time, it's described uh, throughout the scriptures, the time when the Lord returns and he rights all wrongs, he defeats his enemies, and he establishes his kingdom. James says, until that day of reckoning or until death, trust God, suffer well, persevere, be resilient the rest of your life. We were talking about this, this passage in our life group this past week, and one of the things that we talked about is how hard it is for a doctrine like the return of the Lord to actually make a difference in our everyday life. It, it can tend to be one of those doctrines that we check the box, yep, got it, I believe that, and then shelve it somewhere in the back of our minds. But in the New Testament, the return of the Lord is a very, very prominent doctrine. It's not obscure. It's found in almost every book in the New Testament, save two, I believe. And the, the, the nearness of Christ's return is meant to be a continual motivation to please him so that the day when he returns, when we see him face to face, he'll say, well done, you've been faithful, my servant. And so James is telling us, pursue resilience daily for life. What you don't do daily, you don't really do. And so daily pursue resilience. How long? For life. James tells us a couple of ways that we can do this. First of all, he says, learn from the patience, learn from the resilience of others. And the examples that he gives here give us an indication of, of what he's talking about when he refers to patience. Each of these three examples kind of uh, pinpoints a, a different aspect of patience. In verse 7, James mentions the patience of farmers. He says this, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. And some of you understand farming like 100 times more than I do, but James is making a very simple point. Farmers have to wait on certain things that are beyond their control. Uh, farmers have to wait, first of all, for the land to produce the crop. And so farmers are busy. They're working while they wait, but farmers wait for the roots to go down and for the nutrients to come up. There are certain things that cannot be rushed. 
Farmers also wait for the rains. In Bible times, before irrigation, if the rains didn't come, if God didn't send the rains, the crops didn't come up. And so they waited for the autumn and the spring rains, the early and the late rains. And so the farmer wasn't idle, obviously. Farmers are some of the hardest working people on the planet. But while they wait, they're working. They're not idle, they're not passive. They worked while they waited. But they also knew that there were certain factors beyond their control. And so as they worked, they were patient, waiting, looking, expectant. And so what's the relevance for us? Well, James tells us in verse 8, you too, like them, you too, stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. He said, you too, like the farmer, you should be patient and stand firm. That literally means, stand firm means establish your heart, as opposed to having a heart that wanders or a heart that's unstable. He says, anchor your heart in God and his word. Why? He says, because the Lord's coming is near. Just like the farmer knew that the rains would come, and then the crops, then the harvest would come, we trust that Jesus will return at just the right time. And so there's a sense in which this life is basically the growing season. And when Christ returns, that's the harvest. That's what we're really waiting for. We're living for that day. And so the farmer teaches us to wait while we work, accepting that there are many things beyond our control. And as you hear me talking about this waiting, as you hear me saying, learn from the farmer, you can probably identify ways that you have to wait, present tense, right now. Things you have to wait for if you're really gonna persevere. They might be decisions that other people are making. You have no control over this, you're waiting on them. Maybe you have prayed for something, something you are desperate for God to do. You're waiting for God to do what only he can do. Maybe you're, you're waiting for something related to your health. It could be related to something in your work, waiting for something in your work or even in the church. A resilient person trusts God anyway, knowing that the Lord's coming is near. Learn from the farmer to wait. In verse 10, James mentions the perseverance of the prophets. He says this, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So what we learn from the prophets is to suffer well. Uh, you can take almost any prophet in the Old Testament as an example of patience. Uh, Jeremiah, for example, he was given one of the most difficult assignments of anybody. Uh, and so his, his assignment was this. God said, Jeremiah, I want you to go talk to kings. I want you to talk to priests, the religious authorities in, in Judah, and tell them this message. Babylon is going to invade, and when they do, don't resist, because I have irrevocably decided that Israel is going into exile, okay? That's a very unpatriotic message to bring to the king of Judah, right? And so they viewed Jeremiah as a traitor. 
So they treated him the way you would treat a traitor. They put him in stocks in the public square. They beat him. They threw him in the well, and he sank down into the mud. Jeremiah had such a tough assignment that God prohibited him from getting married and having kids, presumably because it's just too hard. You, you, you shouldn't put a wife and kids through that calling. So a very difficult assignment, but Jeremiah suffered well. He persevered. He was long-suffering. He continued to trust God, believing that one day God would vindicate him. And here we are on the other side of the world, 2,800 years later, and we're still talking about Jeremiah, okay? He persevered. Learn from Jeremiah and the prophets. And so they teach us to speak in the name of the Lord and when necessary, to suffer well as the consequences. And so we speak in the name of the Lord when we speak the gospel, when we tell people about what God has done in our lives. God, Jesus died for me when I was dead in my sin. He made me alive together with Christ. And so we talk about this hope. Sometimes people will react to that message. We speak in the name of the Lord when we, we speak out against sin or injustice, and sometimes there will be blowback. And Jesus said, don't be outraged, don't be surprised when people mistreat you for my namesake. The way they treated me, that's the way they will treat you. And so perhaps you can identify ways that you are suffering or have suffered in representing Christ in your family, in your work, in your friend group, even in the church, okay? And so, if so, learn to suffer well from the prophets. Farmers teach us to wait. Prophets teach us to suffer. The third person James mentions is Job, verse 11. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. And in the Bible, to be blessed doesn't mean you have a comfortable life. It means that the favor of God rests upon you. You experience his blessing, his favor. He says, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And so James has us consider Job's perseverance and his experience of God's favor. And you may remember what happened to Job. I mean, he experienced this catastrophic loss. Everything was taken away from him. His, his kids, his wealth, his health, and he never cursed God. He did eventually say a little bit too much, and he had to repent, but he was counted as someone who persevere, persevered. He experienced loss, and he remained faithful to God when almost anybody else would have given up. And so he's an example of someone who experienced God's blessing. God was full of compassion and mercy to him. And so we can learn resilience from Job. And as I thought about this this week, uh, some of you and, and quite a number of people in the church actually came to mind. Uh, people that have actually experienced, people in this, this church who experienced incredible loss, personal loss, and yet they haven't given up. 
They've continued to be faithful, continued to trust God, continued to walk with God. Basically said what Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I should never curse God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so we can learn from Job, but we can also learn from from many people in our midst who have also persevered in the midst of loss. And so if we want to learn to pursue resilience daily for life, we can learn patience from others. We can learn from farmers. We can learn from the prophets. We can learn from Job. We can learn from people right here in our midst. The second thing James tells us to do is to put away sins of the tongue. If you want to be a resilient person, you're going to have to learn to put away sins of the tongue. And they're really evidence of impatience, not patience, and unbelief, not faith. And if you've been with us in the study of James, you just a cursory reading of the book, you're not surprised that James brings up sins of the tongue yet again when he talks about resilience. Uh, he, he, uh, he agreed with his half-brother, Jesus, who said that the sins of tongue are really evidence of a deeper issue. They're sins of the heart. The mouth simply speaks from whatever fills the heart. And so this means that when James tells us to put away sins of the tongue, he's really saying deal with these, these heart issues that are going to cripple and hinder your resilience. In verse 9, he mentions grumbling. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. And this is a, a similar verse to, the, to Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus says, do not judge, so you will not be judged. But instead of saying, do not judge, James says, do not grumble, so you will not be judged. And so grumbling is really a form of judgment. When you grumble against someone, you are judging that person in your heart and with your lips. There's nothing redemptive about grumbling. There's nothing that's helpful to anybody about grumbling. Instead of being an expression of Christ-centered faith, it's an expression of self-centered unbelief. I don't trust God to fight my battles. I don't trust God to work in another person's life. And so I'm going to grumble and I'm going to cause strife and discontent. When James says the judge is standing at the door, he's saying that the coming of the Lord and therefore the day of judgment is at hand. And so again, James has us live and speak in light of that day when we come face to face with the judge, when we meet our maker, our creator, and Jesus, God his father. And so he mentions grumbling. In verse 12, James mentions oaths or swearing. He says this, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. And so there he mentions it again. He mentioned the judge. Here he mentions condemnation for the words that we speak. Again, he indicates that we are accountable for our hearts, therefore we're accountable for our words. And when James mentions swearing here, he's not talking about profanity. He's talking about taking an oath where you swear by the name of God, 
or by anything else. You might say, I'll swear on my grandmother's grave. It's a way of saying, this is true. What I'm saying is true. And the, the, the uh, uh, commentators would, would suggest that the, there was this temptation for the poor to tell half-truths or outright lies in some way to alleviate their suffering. And they would try to get people to believe them by taking these oaths. And so it could be that they were, were telling even the ruthless rich, I will repay the money I owe you, when they had no real intention or maybe no real means of repaying what they owed. And so James says, don't swear by God or by anything else. When you're asked a yes or no question, say yes or no. You should have that type of integrity where you just answer the question truthfully. And so James tells us, pursue resilience by learning from the resilience of others and by putting away sins of the tongue. If you've got unbelief in your heart, if you are self-centered in your heart, put those things away. Fix your mind on God, your heart on God. And so this means a lot of things. One of the core things I think we need to grapple with is that resilience is a matter of the heart. If you want to be resilient, you're not just going to break out some techniques that are going to help you get by. No, you need to love God with all your heart. You need to love God, pursue God daily for a lifetime. And so before I pray, I just wonder if you could, if, as I've been talking, if you have been able to identify any issue in your life in which you need to pursue resilience. Is there an area of your life, maybe the Holy Spirit is just kind of flag, yeah, this is, this is an area. If you don't deal with this, you're not going to be faithful for the long haul. Maybe there's an area of temptation in your life, and you're just not sure you want to be obedient for a lifetime. Or maybe there's a relationship, and you're just, you're just put, placing all your bets on this one relationship and you're like, if this doesn't work out, I don't even know if I'm gonna, gonna walk with God anymore. Or maybe you're waiting. You're waiting for a decision. You're waiting for God to answer prayer. Maybe you're waiting for the salvation of somebody that you've been praying for for a long time. Maybe you're waiting for healing emotionally or bodily. Whatever it is, come to God on a heart level. And just, just lay yourself before God and say, God, I need your grace. If I'm going to be resilient, you have to do this. And so I lay my heart before you. Teach me to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so would you pray with me now? I want us to, to come before God. And to the degree you're able, pray along with me in faith. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you and we admit that many times we are not resilient. We're very fickle. We're faithful when it's easy, but when it's not, God, sometimes we turn to so many other things. And so, God, we want to, we want to be faithful for a lifetime, and so we want to pursue resilience daily. God, we bring the issues before you that you have pinpointed in our lives, the areas of our lives where we're, we're tempted to be unfaithful. We ask for your grace, God. We have no illusions that we can pull this off in our own strength. And so give us, give us your power. Give us your grace. Give us help. We pray that day by day you would give us the will to seek you, 
Thank you that you have not spared your only son. Therefore, you won't withhold any good thing that we need. And so we ask you, God, uh, that we would seek you and find you and that you would, would anchor our hearts in Christ. We pray, God, that we look back on our lives, that uh, we will see that you have made us resilient as we've sought you. This is what we want, and so this is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.